everyone to the rest podcast where our goal is to help each and every one of you displace confusion chaos and dis-ease in order to heal and find significance in life i am your host natalie williams and i am here with the author of the reconstitution method for healing and rest virginia dixon Last week, Virginia was finally able to join us for the first time since she became ill and introduced our new Barriers to Healing series. Today, we are continuing the conversation with our new COO, Stephen Prophet, and discussing the lies we tell both about ourselves and others. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. Thank you. Happy to be here. I am so thankful you're here, Stephen. It's been quite a month. It's been exciting. It has. Yeah, I'm really excited to discuss this topic because I think early on during one of our first meetings, I wanted to introduce you to everyone so they knew that our team was expanding and I want them to know our team and to hear from our team. But I think what was compelling to me that you immediately said, hey, just let's discuss barriers to healing. Yeah. And it just flew right off your tongue. Yeah. And I wondered, well, first of all, I, we're going to talk about why, but I'd like everybody to know a little bit about you. So give us a little bit of background. Yeah, for sure. So I was born and raised in Ohio. I'm a Buckeye at heart. So I was born in Southwest Ohio, grew up in a small town called Carlisle, which I think is technically considered a village, like five to 7,000 people. I lived there, grew up with my dad, my stepmom, K to 12, and graduated, went to Denison University in Central Ohio, east of Columbus. I studied political science there, worked at Denison for a couple years after graduating, and then did my graduate work at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. That's Eastern North Carolina. I did my Master of Divinity at Duke in the Divinity School, and then I actually went back to Ohio, had been away from family and friends for a hot minute, so I served for four years in the Office of Admission at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, also in Southwest Ohio, about 45, 50 minutes from where I grew up. And got connected with Virginia through a mutual friend. And Virginia and I synced. And within the first probably three minutes of our conversation, yeah. I knew there was something special. We just synced mm -hmm. incredibly well. And I realized looking back on my own story, spiritually, personally, that I had already been doing the work of rest for a really long time without that language. And Virginia and I realized we had been running in the same direction for a long time and realized that we would be running faster and further together than we could apart. And so we started, you know, thinking, brainstorming about what partnership, what collaboration could look like. And I feel really grateful, honored to be here serving as her chief operating officer. And yeah, just excited to dive into this conversation. When I thought about what our next series might be, you know, I thought about barriers to healing because I think in so many ways we are enslaved to what we're blind to about ourselves and so coming to see the barriers is first step of awareness toward deeper wholeness, toward healing. And so if we can identify what those barriers are and really unpack the layers of those, uh, that can unlock so much possibility for healing and growth for all of us. Wow. That's so, so good. It's so rich. As you know, I began reading Nowen's book uh, during my very slow healing process from COVID, and it was really compelling because I think the topics he addressed, and Natalie, that was the first segment we did, right? Yes. But I think what was so compelling about his work to me, I loved how he articulated. It's not the difficult, painful, 
confusing, often chaotic things that happen to us mm. that are as significant as the stories we tell ourselves about those events. Yes. And if you haven't listened to that one podcast, I would encourage everyone to go back and, and take a listen. Because today, the first barrier to healing fundamentally is these lies we tell ourselves. Yeah. And I think sometimes the lies we tell ourselves come with the best intentions. When these things happen in our lives, we do the best we can to survive and experience and make sense of those events. Yeah. But they're always in part. It's always not complete. And as you well know now, the pilgrimage of rest is helping people really expand their prism beyond those experiences. And by the grace of God and really the courage and strength and trust that people place in us, we're able to get to those places relatively quickly, yeah. not to mention all the modalities we use. But I do think I did love that topic, and I thought that's fantastic, and it's a great way to introduce you. So people know that we not only have a growing, I think, counseling team, but I love to have the voice of a man mm. in, the, in some of these conversations. I think it's imperative. And I know we're going to be talking about themes and masculinity and other things, yeah. if not this year, at the beginning of next year. But certainly the barriers to healing, the lies we tell ourselves. And talk a little bit about that, because you are really clear on that topic. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the scariest truths we face is that the human heart has a virtually unlimited capacity for self-deception. Right. And I've seen this in my own story, even growing up. So a little bit about my background. I grew up first with my mom and dad. Mom and dad divorced when I was about four. And when I was six, my mom left, moved from Ohio to Florida. And I saw her twice between when she left and then when I graduated high school. And so my mom was out of my life from the time I was six through you know the rest of my childhood. And there were so many stories that I told myself about that experience beyond words. I mean, because as a six-year-old, you don't have language to even begin making sense of that. My aunt, Michelle, would tell me, you know, I would just be riding in the car with her, and then I'd ask, you know, where's my mom? And she would just, like, turn, look out the window, and, like, a tear would stream down her face. And for me, I told myself a lot of stories about, you know, why she left. I'd internalized a lot of narratives that she left because I wasn't good enough to stay. And when I was young, one of the ways that I really tried to cope with that was through academics. I really poured myself, drew my sense of self-worth from my academic performance, from the approval of my teachers, from the respect of my peers. That became the way that I really tried to fill this aching void that I felt from my mother's absence. And that's something that carried throughout college even, is this normal that I had developed and I think a lot of times, if you would have asked me in my high school years or even my college years, I would have said, yeah, like I, I feel secure, I feel grounded, I feel joyful. And successful, you know, there was, right? And, successful. and successful, yeah. yeah. And there was, there was a lot of truth to that. But I think, you know, at a really deep level that I didn't realize then, what I meant by, you know, I feel joyful, I feel secure is that my normal is still working for me. You know, these stories I've told myself about where worth is found, these ways I've tried to cope, going about getting the love that I needed but really lacked deep down. I was really trying to fill those voids through this vision of success and through academic performance, through leadership roles. And so I was sort of amassing this self-worth resume. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not something I realized at the time until actually I graduated grad school and went through a period where this process for gaining self-worth through getting the A's and being in these leadership roles, all of a sudden the rug was stripped out from under me. I was out of school. Now what do I do? Where do I find security? How do I find a sense of self-worth? And so it was this unraveling period where I had to reckon with myself and see myself more fully and deeply than I had before. And beyond so, your capacity to perform. At yeah, those beyond my things, capacity yeah. to perform. And these are things that at some level I had been already processing. For me spiritually, even in late high school, I had some awareness that I was really drawing my sense of self-worth from my grades, but I didn't realize how deep that well went, how deeply I was really trying to find security from my performance in these ways. It's exhausting, huh? And it's really exhausting. When you would get to exam time, you would feel that anxiety and it would just be like constant adrenaline because you feel like your self-worth is at stake. And I felt like I constantly had to be running in order to stay ahead, perform to gain this approval that I'm okay. Listening to you, Stephen, makes me think of, we talk a lot about how we love, and as you know, you've been reading the book, and yeah. I know you're becoming very familiar with the resources we use, but to the pleaser, it's always complying, right? Sure. And making sure everybody's okay. To the avoider, it's mm. always retreating and finding mm. a quiet space. To a controller, for example, when we grew up in a measure of chaos, it's really controlling and making sure I stay on top of this thing. To a vacillator, it's always being hypervigilant about reading the rise and fall of other people's enthusiasms. But when our moms leave us at four and six and seven years old, right, it yeah. becomes really complicated because we nobody teaches us how to measure these gauges, how to regulate all yes. these things. Yes. Because really, right, to some extent, we're all victims of things. And to some extent, we're controllers and we all vacillate and we all please and we all avoid, avoid yeah. but it's what regulates our behavior, which is what you're addressing. That's really significant. So the lies you were telling yourself was that your meaning and your self-worth would be gained or would be sustained by performance, basically, right? Yeah. And I think even at a deeper level, the lie is that our self-worth has to be performed for. It's not something that I receive and rest in. I have to go out and get it. It was woven into the tapestry of your constitution. It was a gift. Yes. You couldn't even enjoy your gift of being bright and capable. And Yes. And a quote that has been really meaningful for me for a long time now is a quote by the, the Sufi poet Rumi, who I believe is a 12th century poet. He says, your task is not to seek and find love, but to seek and find within yourself all the barriers you've built against it. Wow. Lies. Yeah, and it was this awareness that it's not about going out and getting love that isn't already mine. It's about resting in receiving the love that I already have, <laughs> resting in this self-worth, this, this verdict that, that I'm can, enough. Yes, and that can be a fun pilgrimage, right? Yeah, fun and unraveling. Painfully, <laughs> unraveling, fun and but at least Fun's it's one way to put it. An adventure, maybe. Yeah, is always more. an adventure. Always, always an, adventure. an adventure. Yeah. Because I want people that are listening to us, Stephen, to say, hey, I have so much brokenness. I have abandonment. I have pain. I mean, hurt people hurt people. And often we don't know the measure to which we're hurt. We don't understand what we're carrying. And part of rest, right, is helping people unravel all those layers. And we like to do it sooner than later. We like to do it quicker <laughs> yeah. than in most situations. We don't want to see people in counseling for years. We yeah. want to see people in freedom, understanding about rest, 
so they can reconcile the things that are confusing and chaotic and that puts them in a state of disease, yeah. right? And that's something that for me, even learning about rest from the outside, when I met you, Virginia, and we started having these conversations and I would hear from former clients, they're sharing their experiences. And one common refrain is that you've done more for me in two weeks than I'd gotten therapy in two years. Yeah. Things like this. You did more for me in, in a weekend of rest than I experienced in seven years of psychotherapy. And I thought, wow, I mean, these are people independently of each other who are really telling the story of the transformative power of rest in their lives and what it's done to help them reconcile these conflicts within themselves and experience the freedom of wholeness. And so it's been really amazing just to hear people's personal stories of how rest has not only impacted, but really transformed at a fundamental level and, and shaped this before and after experience. Yeah. And I'm so thankful to have you here. Thank you again for trusting me and for trusting us. It takes a lot to move across the country and say, wow, I feel called here. I think I was made for this. And I think what, one of the things that was compelling to me about you is that you've done the hard work. Mm. You understand the value of this. And you immediately intuitively understood that rest is really a, a missing piece mm. in how we view wellness and yes. healing. And when we're not just facing a nation in a state of dis-ease and confusion and chaos, this is the whole global conversation we're sure. having. And we know, Stephen, because people from all over the world join our podcast and yeah. listen and comment. But I'm so excited to have your voice here as well, because I think you're in your early 30s. You're the voice of a generation. Mm. I think you have context for many. I'm 60. Right. So I think you have context for many things that are just going to be life giving to our listening mm. audience. And I'm excited about that, both what you're going to bring administratively to the team yeah. and periodically when we have these conversations. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. Thank you. Same. Thank you. These barriers to healing, the lies we tell ourselves, part of the anatomy of dissent, I always say there's three fundamental lies, right? And they're driven by three lusts. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. I want, I need, I deserve. And these fundamental lies can shake the foundations of these foundational things that we know. No, if I go sleep with my best friend's wife, that is wrong. It is a violation. But somehow I encounter things like that all the time where people profoundly violate their conscience, right? Yeah. I want, I need, I need somebody to talk to. She's the only one that understands me. Well, is that the only person, right? Mm -hmm. And then, well, I deserve this. I've done this. I've been there for them. I've been there for that. I hear the most outlandish stories. I'm always looking for ways to make things simple, pragmatic, and accessible to people. So three fundamental lies are driven by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Mm. I want, I need, I deserve. Yeah. These fundamental things are lies that will derail our lives and send us into a state of confusion into violating our conscience. And then what do we all do? We cover, we hide, and we blame. And we're going to talk about this and break down that anatomy of dissent. But just by way of lies, those mm. are three fundamental lies. And you and I were talking about that a little bit. Would you add anything to that that is compelling? Yeah, my dad has actually been a, a mechanic for 37 years. And so uh, when we talk, when we catch up, he'll always ask me how the car's going. And I remember 
my last vehicle was a 2000 Honda Accord that I'd had for almost a decade. This thing has 190,000 miles on it. We've been on some great adventures together across the country. And I would look on the dashboard and it would look like Christmas. All these lights everywhere. (laughs) And my dad would take one look at it. I always hoped he didn't get in the car because I didn't want him to see all the lights flashing. But I think warning lights are really important because they signal that something is amiss. This is worth paying attention to. And I think about what are our warning lights personally, emotionally, things like fear, worry, regret, anxiety, shame. These are warning lights that we have that really invite us to pay closer attention, to get curious. And I think curiosity is so essential in the process of healing, wanting to unpack the layers of this. What are the things that I think about when I have nothing else to think about, when I'm not being asked to think about anything else, when I'm laying my head down on the pillow at night before I go to bed. I have a friend who, for a long time, could not go to sleep without the TV on because he didn't want to be alone with his thoughts. Mm. That's far too common in today's society. I was talking to a friend about this the other day. Yeah. Yeah, it's far too common. 100%. And I've had to really think a lot about my own relationship with social media. How am I maybe trying to outrun the feelings I don't want to sit with because I'm hopping on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it might be, right? Like, what is my relationship with social media? How how might I be trying to distract myself from what I need to pay attention to? From rest. F- from rest. And so what are those warning lights? Where am I feeling anxiety? Where am I experiencing fear? What am I worrying about? And unpacking that. And unpacking that, getting curious about what those warning lights are saying. I thought of a proverb, it's hope deferred makes the heart sick. Mm -hmm. Mm. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. What does it mean to defer hope? The way that I think about it is if I put my ultimate hope in something that can be lost, I will always be controlled by the fear of losing it. And even if I get what I want, that I believe I need, it will never be enough. It's like having a drug addiction. It's like you shoot up, you get a high, and then the next time you have to shoot up more to get the same high. Or drink. Or drink, or whatever that thing might be, right? And so for so many years, I put my ultimate hope in this vision of success. If I get these grades, if I get these leadership roles, if I get into this college, if I get these accomplishments, then I'll know that I'm enough. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a race that... You're always running because there's always a next thing. You wake up the next day and you have to prove your worth again. And so, you know, this was a warning light that if I had really stopped for long enough to pay attention, I remember my sophomore year at Denison, I had just a breakdown. I I called my friend and I was pouring my heart out to him and he didn't even know what to say. He was just sitting with me in that because I was just so spread thin. I was involved in eight different organizations, president or on the board of so many of them. And I was hustling. And it's because I really set my ultimate hope on this vision of success. If I get these accomplishments, Mm -hmm. then I'll know that I'm enough. And so I was just constantly anxious, seeking to perform my sense of self-worth. So I think really when we're talking about barriers to healing, we're talking about lies, we're thinking about what, what am I putting my hope in? Yeah. And when that hope is deferred, maybe it's, maybe it's success, money, power, maybe it's physical beauty, body, whatever we're chasing, right? Whatever we're chasing relationships. I mean, so many relationships in my life that I've drawn my sense of self-worth from in at some level status, reputation. One of the ones for me 
I don't know if folks are familiar with the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram 2. And the Enneagram 2 is called the helper. And Enneagram 2s are generally very empathetic, warm, giving, considerate, sensitive to other people's needs. And, and those are realities. I mean, that's who I am as a person, personality-wise. I am just naturally caregiving in that way. But one thing I realized years ago was that I was, I was drawing my sense of self-worth from what I would call caregiver validation. I was finding my identity, finding my sense of self-worth in being a caregiver for people in my life. Again, exhausting. So exhausting because it's like I constantly have to validate my role in this person's life mm-hmm. as a caregiver, a primary caregiver. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's anxious because you constantly have to perform and prove that you still have that role in that person's life. And it is exhausting. You spread yourself thin and create a lot of conflict in relationships. So because you go back to the performance thing, right? It's yeah. Performing it's like a black hole. Yeah. yeah. I think it's almost like we have two options. We're either performing for our sense of self-worth or we are resting in the truth that we are already worthy of love and belonging. And so it's like, am I, am I performing for the love that I need or am I resting in the love that is already mine? And I think the caregiving thing, and here's the other thing about it too, is that being kind to people, being caring toward people, I mean, these are universally good things. And so I think one of the things when we talk about barriers to healing, we talk about lies, I, I'm seeing myself as an altruistic person, as a considerate person, as a kind person. And I'm being blind to the reality that actually I am using caregiving for self-validation. That's right. I am engaging this relationship in order to <laughs> validate my worthiness to be loved, <laughs> not engaging it from a place of wholeness to show genuine care with no strings exactly. attached. Exactly. And that creates confusion in the relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And it strains a relationship. Yeah. So even our good intentions sometimes and our motives need to be yes. understood. And again, and I know we're reaching the conclusion of this in a little bit, but that's not living in a place of rest. And I want to draw the distinction between sleep and restful sleep. We can physically sleep. Yeah, I hear that. But the reason people... Yeah, wake up exhausted (laughs) is because they're not resting. And that's when a whole different transaction happens within the lobes of our brain, where the front executive function calms down. And then our occipitals, the back of our brain starts becoming a little bit more active. So we can digest everything that came in from those frontal lobes. When that doesn't happen, there is not restful sleep. If there's not restful sleep, the body can literally not detox. So in the context of what you just said, it's like these toxins literally build up and yes. cannot be expelled from the body. So for our listening audience, if you just go to YouTube and understand restful sleep and why it's necessary for survival and to beat disease and to strengthen your immune system, right? Yeah. We all know that my life kind of spun into a tailspin for about three months and I couldn't figure out what to set aside. What I was deprived of for three months was complete restful sleep. And yeah. so what happened? A COVID client came in, and I've been exposed to COVID, by the way, all year, but my body was exhausted. It had no defense. So when we do not live in these places of rest, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, we really just become slowly sick. Yeah, it's almost like we have two options, rest or distraction. And I think as I look back on previous seasons of my life where I thought, oh, I was at rest, I was, I was secure, I was grounded, I was good. There's this undercurrent of anxiety that I wasn't really giving space for. And it's almost like we develop all these 
habits or rhythms of distracting ourselves from the truths that we don't want to face, from the feelings that we don't want to sit with. We run away from the warning lights, which I've done in my car. I mean, so many times, my dad gets on me about it all the time. But when it comes to ourselves emotionally, spiritually, one of the things I've really been sitting with since starting my work with Virginia is that we never really can outrun the feelings that we don't face. And the reason for that is because the body always keeps the score. This comes from the book by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk that the body keeps the score. It's when I'm not processing pain, I'm storing that in my body. Yeah, feelings Mm -hmm. buried alive never die. Yes, absolutely. I am storing that in my body. I'm storing up illness and a disconnection from myself. My body is carrying the weight of that. And Mm -hmm. you said earlier, hurt people hurt people. I think to kind of lean in on that for a second, hurt people that don't process their pain. That's right. Hurt people. Mm-hmm. Because you can be wounded and process your pain in ways That's that right. lead you to be more compassionate, wiser, more self-aware, kinder, more empathetic. But it's when I'm not giving space to really sit with these feelings of worry, stress, shame, anxiety, fear, not paying attention to the warning lights, <laughs> that I'm actually holding myself back from healing mm-hmm. because that is the necessary first step. It's an injustice we commit against ourselves. And you know what? It violates our conscience. And a violation of conscience, I'll give you a good definition of sin, Mm. is when we violate our conscience. It's that internal gauge we will not listen to. And so really it's an assault against ourselves first. So that was such a good explanation of it. Yeah, I really want to take this back actually to the proverb that you referenced. And we've Mm. actually referenced this before in an earlier episode, but outside of this specific context. Mm. And I want to read the rest of the proverb for people. So like Stephen said, hope deferred makes the heart sick. The rest of it says, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And I think that that's incredible. And the the thing that I think about in regards to hope, and I think you did a, a great explanation of it, but I also think hope in essence is freedom. When we have hope in something, we're free. Like we're able to dream. We're able to, to move forward in life uninhibited. There's movement. There's movement. Yes. It's active. And when we don't have that, when we have, like, like you talked about, I kept thinking over and over how these were expectations that you would put on yourself feeling like I need this. I need to do this. It's that Mm -hmm. lie, right? Mm -hmm. I need this. It's that, that expectation that steals hope away from us. Cause you, you couldn't sit there and be like, Oh, like I, I can go and do my own thing. Like you're not actually living free. You're like, no, I need to do this. I need this in order to survive and you're not actually free. So that's what made me, I, that's what I thought about when I, I love, read I this like proverb. that you read the rest of it. Yeah. yeah. I love this. The other thing too, with the warning lights was that it doesn't just manifest mentally or emotionally it also manifests physically and yes. that's something that Bessel van der Kolk talks about in yes. The Body Keeps a Score so does Gilbert Renaud in Recall Healing there's volumes of research and science to support this oh yeah and the conventional allopathic medical field in their defense they don't even have time in a day I've worked with many many doctors who have become my clients because literally they were facing a breakdown because Mm. they couldn't deal with the emotional constitution and the narrative, by the way, narrative behind these states of disease. So what Stephen's saying is so important in the context of these warning lights. So I just want to encourage everyone in the most practical way, my takeaway today, my encouragement to everyone would be, be careful with the, I want, I need, I deserve the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. 
and laws of nature, things that are self-evident and appeal to our natural affections are always a good gauge. And if that becomes difficult to grasp, just think about it this way. Everything has an origin and an intelligence sustains everything. In my economy, I call that God. And the question is, did God really say you should not lie? Did God really say you should not beat your children or cheat on your husband? Did God really say, well, you know what? No, there's not going to be consequences to that. Lie number two. And then is, you know what? You have the right to do what you want. You can be a master of your own destiny. Lie number three. Mm Mm-hmm. So we can talk about the manifestations of those lies, and I think Stephen did a really good job explaining how they manifested in a practical way in his life. I just want to bring people back to something very simple. I want, I need, I deserve. The lust Mm -hmm. of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Be careful. Did God really say? That's not going to happen. Do what you want because these are different times. Those are very practical gauges that I often use. Yeah, I want, I need, I deserve. That's a question that I'd love to leave with our listeners is, you know, what hope is worthy of investing ourselves wholeheartedly in? You know, because if I am putting my hope in anything that can be lost, I will always be controlled by the fear of losing it. And I'll never be at rest. That's a great note to finish on. Thank you so much, Stephen and Natalie. Thank you for producing all this we appreciate you deeply my pleasure thank you steven this was great yeah thank you both so much all right as a reminder our next afternoon of rest is next week on september 25th you can find the details and register under the events tab on our website virginiadixon.com for updates about rest and this podcast please visit our instagram or facebook the place of rest If you'd like more information about Virginia or to support and join the cause of rest, please go to virginiadixon.com forward slash collaborate. Thank you for listening to Rest with Virginia Dixon. Have a wonderful weekend.